Okay, let's uh, open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of the word of God. We pray that you will embed it in our hearts. We pray that you will help us to discern and understand the times in which we live, and that we will use these times to testify about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom and the coming king. Bless us this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, I should have been clever. Can you see this shirt, by the way? Um, uh, Somebody was making a joke that I... Uh, the canary in the gold mine, maybe it should be the canary of the end time, so that if if I disappear or go down, then that's that's the that's the equivalent of hitting the panic button. Um, but this week, obviously, we're going to talk a little bit, a lot, about Lebanon's Chernobyl. Now, I did a midweek update. I called it explosion in Hezbollahstan, and. Um, I'm going to, I'll probably replow some of that ground that I talked about just to kind of put things in context. But we'll look at a few things again as we look each week about this convergence of events and the fact that we live in a very disrupted world. Does anybody think that the world is less disrupted today than it was a week ago? Um, there's, there's a lot of things going on. I will also remind you that uh, the updates that I do are also being posted at Remnant Truth Network, rtntv.org. Uh, you should get up sometime on Sunday. There's also a Remnant Truth Network app uh, so that you can download it and I believe listen to just the audio in case you have some bandwidth issues. I keep wanting to replace this verse, but I think this verse really does speak to the current situation in which we live, at least we're progressing towards this. I'm not saying that this verse has been fulfilled, or these verses, but Luke chapter 21, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the seas and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And certainly we saw that this week, and I'm always fascinated when um, secular people, non-Christian people use apocalyptic language when they're describing events that took place. And the headline um, and article in the Arab News the other day was uh, Powder Keg Beirut, it was like the apocalypse. Uh, You know, everybody, it seems, has an end-time eschatology, and I think everybody tries to interpret things through that. So let's look at a couple things going on in our culture, then we'll talk about Beirut in the Middle East, because there's a, and I'm going to take a little bit different approach, I think, than some other people. We're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into some background about the situation in Lebanon, so you can understand the context of the things that you're, so you can sort of interpret the news about what's happening, because I think what's happening in Lebanon is very significant. I don't think it's necessarily the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, but I think it's certainly an indicator to you as how these things are going to work out in the future. And we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. So just a couple things going on in our culture. There was this, um, I've researched this quite a bit, uh, and as far as I can tell, this was something that was sent 
in Minneapolis to members of a certain precinct, the, the people that live in a certain precinct. And essentially, it said that um, if, if you're attacked, well, first of all, this was the police chief in Seattle sending a letter to city council. And she's, been, she's tried to be supportive of what's been going on in Seattle. Uh, she's black. Um, as far as I know, she's very competent. But what happened was the protesters went over to her house, and she did not like that. And she wrote to the city council and said, we have a major problem here. We have to do something. Uh, to which one pundit said this, a liberal reform police chief is just a law and order police chief whose home ha who hasn't had her home vandalized yet. And that's true. This is the third precinct thing that happened in uh, Minneapolis. They sent this notice out. Now, as far as I can tell, this was authentic. This was sent out around July 28th. And, and of course, with everything that happens now, there is... If people don't like it, they just say it's fake and they never pay attention to it and they never research it. And I will tell you, you are going to see one or two or three major things a week that are going to be very disruptive, uh, particularly with regard to things in our federal government because of the election that's coming up. Just brace yourselves for it. It's going to happen. I don't know if it starts this week or the following week or in a month, but it's going to be something major every week. For example, the New York Attorney General filed a lawsuit the other day against the National Rifle Association trying to dissolve the National Rifle Association. And even the Washington Post had an editorial this morning saying, this is, this is ridiculous, this is unconstitutional, this should not take place, this is atrocious, what's happening in New York. But I'm telling you, you're gonna see things like that every week. Uh, you're going to see things about the president's tax returns and business dealings. It's, it's going to be a constant flow of information. And it's all designed to do things. You're going to see this fight about, and I don't really have much to say about the coronavirus thing this week, except to note that um, you all know the doctors that got on the steps of the Supreme Court, I think it was, in Washington, and said, listen, we, we treat people with hydrochloroquine, um, zinc and Zithromax, and people are getting better. And immediately everybody comes out and they cite these studies and they say, look, here's a study that says hydrochloroquine doesn't work. But the hydrochloroquine wasn't used with zinc and Zithromax in those cases. So I don't know that the study proves anything. It doesn't refute what these doctors have said and what they've seen in their own cases. And hydrochloroquine's been around for what, 80 years, 65, 70, 80 years? And everybody knows the side effects of it, but because certain people think it might help, I, I see this, everything's a battle now. Everything's a fight. Everything's a, and it's not a fight, it's not a battle, it's a war. And so there's all these people that are doing it. And I thought all the people that are against hydrochloroquine were pro-choice. You know, they want to give drugs to kill babies to young girls. What? But hydrochloroquine, oh, now we got to draw the line on that. We can't have people choosing to use that thing, even though you can buy it over the counter in a lot of countries. So anyway, so Minneapolis, so I will tell you up front, there are people that say that this is not true, this is fake, this is not made up. But it was sent out to the members of the pre third precinct residents in Minneapolis, and essentially says, listen, you know, you're, 
we're having trouble, we're having a disruption. And if you get attacked, there's some things you should do. Uh, for example, you should be prepared to give up your cell phone and purse or wallet. Do as they say, your safety is most important. Be a good witness. When you call 911, be prepared to answer many questions, how many suspects, age, everything, that type of thing. But the problem is now, in a lot of cities, and Minneapolis is a case in point, they estimate by the end of the year, one-third of the Minneapolis police force will have resigned and quit, either on medical leave or retired, because they've had it. And so all, all the people that wanted to fund the police and reduce police presence, they're getting what they want without even getting the legislation, legislation passed. But if you have one-third fewer police officers in Minneapolis, the advice here to call 911 is not much, I mean, it's advice, but good luck. And so I think it's why you can go to some of the local sporting goods stores and you can't find ammo and guns on the shelves. I mean, things are fl literally flying off the shelves. But this is the state that we live in now. And you do, I think, the advice is you do have to take care of yourself because, and the police are reluctant to come out. Uh, they released the George Floyd video this week. You can watch it. Uh, Eventually, we're going to get the full autopsy report. I've seen parts of that. And personally, I, you know, this is not saying whether the cops were right in what they did or not, but the fact of the matter is there was a lot more going on there with Mr. Floyd than just somebody. He was having trouble breathing before anybody uh, put a knee on his neck or appeared to put a knee on his neck. And so I'm just saying is... In, that trial, it'll be like the Rodney King thing. There'll be riots after the Rodney King thing. I was in L.A. once, and I was on my way to the airport, and I forgot to get gas. So I actually stopped in the neighborhood around where the Rodney King riots sort of had their epicenter. And I started to put gas in the, in the car that I had, and immediately there were at least 30 emergency vehicles start screaming with sirens blaring and lights going, come screaming up to the intersection. And I'm like, oh, man, this, I don't know if this is going to work out very well. They had big hook and ladder trucks and all this other stuff, and there's nothing there over two stories tall. Um, and you know how I figured that it, it was, I was going to be okay? I looked around, and nobody was doing this. <laughs> nobody had their cell phone up taking pictures, so I figured it was just a drill. Uh, so if you see something happening and nobody's taking video of it on their cell phone, then you're probably going to be okay. In response to this thing in Minneapolis, uh, I've, there's some funny people on Twitter. This guy said this. How about we save time and possible COVID contamination? Just bag your stuff up, wallet, credit cards, cash, social security card, and phone. Place it on your porch in a bag, clearly marked bad guy, so as to avoid a confusion with the DAV bag. <laughs> so, um, this is an interesting story in the New York Times the other day. This is going back a little bit to the election and what's going to happen. They actually sat down and they had a war game. 
as to what they might do with regard to the how the election would come out. I've told you that I think that maybe half the states will not have a winner a month or more later after the election takes place. I mean, just look what happened in New York in a Democratic precinct where they have mail-in ballot rules and the courts have pretty much said, eh, you know, you don't have to be that strict about it. And they're, so they're still counting these things a couple months after the election. Well, a couple months after the election is the first week in January when the electors are supposed to meet. I'm just saying is I don't know if all the states will be decided by then. I don't know that we'll really know who won the presidential election by then. And if you think you're seeing chaos now, just wait. And a lot of that is going to be, I believe, chaos by design. So um, the economy did improve. There were some, there's still a large number of unemployment claims, about 1.2 million but people uh, are getting hired back. But it's, you know, I see this stuff in my law practice, and it is, it is a financial apocalypse out there. I mean, there are malls closing down, there are stores closing down, restaurants closing down. And a lot of these have been pretty important um, financial lifebloods of the community. But with regard to this war game that they had about the election, let me just read for you what happened. Now, uh, this were political operatives, some from both parties, and they had one person in the war game playing Joe Biden. So who did they select? They selected John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, to play Joe Biden. But it says here, a group of former top government officials called the Transition Integrity Project. Boy, is there, if there ever been a, a misnamed group, this, this one, actually game four possible scenarios, including one that doesn't look that different from 2016. A big popular win for Mr. Biden and a narrow electoral defeat, presumably reached after weeks of counting the votes in Pennsylvania. And while Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, it didn't matter that we elect people by the Electoral College. That's how, this is, that's how we work under our Constitution. If you don't like it, go change the Constitution. Um, for their war game, they cast John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, in the role of Mr. Biden. They expected him, when the votes came in, to concede, just as Mrs. Clinton had. But Mr. Podesta, playing Mr. Biden, shocked the organizers by saying he felt his party wouldn't let him concede. Alleging voter suppression, he persuaded the governors of Michigan and Wisconsin to send pro-Biden electors to the Electoral College. The implication being that's not who should have been sent to the Electoral College, but the governor did what he or she wanted anyway. And I hear this governor up in uh, Whitmer, up in Michigan, is now one of the leading candidates to be the vice president. In that scenario, uh, what, what uh, Podesta brought up, California, Oregon, and Washington then threatened to secede from the United States if Mr. Trump off, took tr office as he planned, as planned. The House named Mr. Biden president. The Senate and White House stuck with Mr. Trump. At that point in the scenario, the nation stopped looking for, to the media for cues and waited to see what the military would do. Okay, you read about it. Well, um, let's talk about Lebanon. So I'm going to I'm going to take kind of do a swerve off. 
but I don't think it's a rabbit trail. I think it's very important to understand the context of the situation. August 9th is a very important date for Jewish people in Israel. On August 9th, 1982, this restaurant was the scene of an anti-Jewish attack in Paris. 19 years later, which would be 19 years ago today, this attack took place at the Sabaro Pizza restaurant in downtown Jerusalem. And I think, I forget the number, 14, 17 were killed. Interestingly enough, the people involved in those terrorist attacks, including Alman Tamini, the Islamist bomber of the pizzeria, in which 16 people were killed, including this person's daughter, is a Jordanian celebrity today living free in Jordan despite facing terrorism charges in Washington. So when you hear all this stuff about, oh, you know, Jordan is so pro-Israel and so nice and all this stuff, don't, I don't believe a word of it. They let terrorists run free. And King Abdullah II, he never stands up to this. Now, I want to go back to the beginning of the week. So last Sunday we stood here and we talked about the world is pretty disrupted. And Monday, the world seemed pretty disrupted. Tuesday it really changed, Tuesday evening. It was interesting what was in the main headlines and papers in the Middle East on the morning, of, on Tuesday morning. The attack in Lebanon happened about 6 p.m., but when I was reviewing the newspapers, I noticed a few stories. First of all, the IDF had thwarted an attack along the Syrian border where they tried to plan an IED. And the question was, the question in Seth Fransman's article in the Jerusalem Post was, does the ID, IED incident mark a dangerous escalation in the southern Golan? And the question was, who really is responsible? Was it Hezbollah or was it one of the other many, 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 many Syrian groups that, have a, that are Islamist and have, that are anti-Israel and anti-Jewish? And the answer was, we don't really know. The other thing that happened, this was reported on Tuesday morning, this is from the National and the United Arab Emirates newspaper, and here is the headline, Lebanese government weakened by foreign minister's resignation. So the government was just formed in January, and it's already falling apart. It's a parliamentary system in, in Lebanon. And the foreign minister resigned. He said, listen, we're not serving the people. I didn't sign up for this. I'm not doing what I was supposed to do. I'm out of here. That was Tuesday morning when that, that news really became known around the world. And he said, it's, it's over. About a week, uh, four days before that, Steve Cook at Foreign Policy had written an article about the fact that Lebanon is, a, is essentially a failed state. And when the foreign minister resigned, he picked up on that thing and he said, we're on the verge of becoming a failed state. I think they already are a failed state. It's just that nobody wants to make the final call on pronouncing the body dead, so to speak. want to... Uh, wait for, you know, maybe, maybe there's some signs that they'll, they'll miraculously come back to life, but I, I think we're in a very serious situation. So the foreign minister of Lebanon resigned. As I was researching this, though, um, because we know Hezbollah is effectively in control of the Lebanese government, and by the way, um, pray for the people of Lebanon. They are in desperate, desperate, desperate situations. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, they need prayer and they need aid. Uh, 
and there have been many, many flights come in. But as I was researching that, I came across this picture. And what is that picture? That's the waterfront in Beirut, and that's smoke coming up. Now, when you see that picture, you might think, oh, well, this is just a picture of what happened the other day, and that's not true. Actually, this is a picture from February 14, 2015. Actually, I'm not, and that's not correct. It's February 14, 2005. In fact, so that gets in the right thing. I'm going to change that right now. February 14, 2005, Valentine's Day. What happened that day? And so this was reported in the National and the United Arab Emirates and in a number of other newspapers as a very significant thing was supposed to be come to a resolution this week. What was that? Well, it was about the assassination of Rafiq Hariri, who was the prime minister of Lebanon, who was assassinated in a bomb that exploded around the St. George Hotel along near the waterfront in Beirut, Lebanon, not too far from where the explosion took place the other day. And it's not just geographically connected. There's a lot of connections there. I'm going to go through those a little bit. There is a very, very good article in the New York Times. And when the Times does journalism, real true journalism, and leaves their opinions out of it. They do a pretty good article. So in 2015, that's where I got my thing mixed up, they had a big article called The Hezbollah Connection. It was in the New York Times Magazine 10 years after the assassination of Rafiq Hariri, who you see here sitting on the right, in Damascus in the latter part of 2004, where he had been summoned to a meeting by the guy on the left, Bashar al-Assad, the dictator that runs Syria. What had happened was, historically, around the mid-70s, Israel was having problems with terrorism from Lebanon. They were making some raids across the border into Syria, Hafez al-Assad did not like that. He had lost the Golan Heights just eight years prior to Israel in the Six-Day War. His tank army was destroyed in what many people describe as a miraculous battle during the 67 War. But what Assad did, decided and what Assad believed, now this is the father of the current dictator, this is the, so the prior dictator, who died in 2000, by the way, he started, he, he believed that Lebanon really belonged to Syria. Lebanon should be part of Syria. So what he did was he funded different groups in Syria, uh, terror groups and that type of thing, to help start taking control of the government. So here's what the New York Times article says. Now we go to uh, 1982. In 1982, Israel began an invasion across its northern border, seeking to root out elements of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. The Israeli military weakened, wreaked destruction all the way up to Beirut and forced the PLO out of Lebanon. It also defeated the Syrian army and particularly the Air Force wherever it engaged them. Realizing he couldn't win in a conventional war against the Israelis, 
Assad, an Alawite Muslim, took a different and somewhat surprising tack. He withdrew his opposition to a plan proposed by clerics loyal to Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini of, I Khomeini of Iran to establish a Shiite political party in Lebanon. So Khomeini, so back in 1982, almost 40 years ago, just a couple years, a few years after the Iranian Revolution in 1979, Khomeini was trying to establish a Shiite political party in Lebanon. Do you see the connection? All the stuff that's going on in Syria and Lebanon today has its roots back then. And initially Assad opposed it, and then Assad thought, hey, you know what, I can work with this. The organization, which was a resounding success, this Shiite party, called itself the Party of God. In Arabic, it's known as Hezbollah. Assad hoped that the Shiite guerrilla force would maul the Israeli army, which still occupied a security zone. Is, am I getting a sound from someplace? Okay. Okay. Take that guy's phone away from him. Who is he, anyway? Uh, so anyway, uh, so uh, let me go back to this. Assad was hopeful that the Shiite guerrilla force would maul the Israeli army, which still occupied a security zone in southern Lebanon. It did, and Israel's response was to assassinate the Secretary General of Hezbollah, Sheikh Abbas Moussaoui, in February 1992. Moussaoui was, was succeeded by a capable young cleric named Hassan Nasrallah. And Nasrallah, in turn, appointed Ahmad Mugenye to run Hezbollah's military wing. And Mugenye was kind of a genius of terrorism. He made suicide bombing a strategic weapon, and he was a master of guerrilla tactics, blitz attacks, and radio-controlled explosive devices. He also had a gift for propaganda. It was Hezbollah that first started recording its own attacks and broadcasting the results. And remember, there was an attack on the Marines' barracks in 1982 or 83 in Beirut. Over, uh, they killed 241 um, American servicemen and 58 French servicemen and six civilians, and the U.S. withdrew. In 2000, with just a small militia under his command, Nasrallah succeeded in forcing the Israeli army, the strongest military force in the Middle East, to withdraw from southern Lebanon. Hafez al-Assad died that same year, and his son took over as president of Syria. He noted how well the partnership of Nasrallah had succeeded with Hezbollah, where the entire Arab world, including his own father, had failed, and he made Syria's link with Hezbollah and its patrons in Tehran the central component of his security doctrine. Remember that. This, is, this has been in place now for about 20 years. But inside Lebanon, Israel's withdrawal in 2000 began to raise hopes that Syria, too, might soon depart. To the consternation of Hezbollah leaders and many Syrian-backed politicians, an anti-Syria coalition began to form. And it went back and forth. And eventually, they did some power sharing and great arrangements. And Rafiq Hariri was elected as the prime minister. And he was pro-Western. His goal was to make Lebanon a Western-friendly star in the Middle East, to sort of restore it to its old glory when Beirut was called the Paris of the Middle East. But in 75, that all started to blow apart when they had that long uh, Lebanese civil war and that type of thing.
So it says this, on August 26, 2004, this is a picture of the meeting, Assad summoned Hariri to his presidential palace in Damascus to deliver an ultimatum. Lahoud must remain in office, Assad said, even if the United States in France didn't like it. Hariri objected, but Assad cut him short. It will be a lewd, he said. If Hariri or another person at the meeting tried to stop him, another person present at the meeting told the tribunal, this is a tribunal that, remember I saw a headline about the tribunal that's been trying to decide this. It's from 2005. They're just now, 15 years later, they're still, it's based in the Netherlands. They haven't issued a decision yet. Uh, this person at the meeting repeated the threat. I will break Lebanon over your head and over Walid Jumblat's head, he said. So you had better return to Beirut and arrange the matter on that basis. Assad, of course, denies having to do that. So Harari returned to Beirut. One of his bodyguards would later tell the United Nations investigation that the prime minister was so shocked by the encounter with Assad that his nose began to bleed. He returned to Lebanon and drove to Jumblat's home. Assad's father had almost certainly ordered the death of Jumblat's father, the Lebanese opposition leader, in 1977, was also most likely behind the assassination of Bashir Jamal, the Christian president-elect of Lebanon in 1982. And as a result, Hariri was concerned. Now, Hariri had made his fortune. He was, a, by this time, a billionaire. And he had made his fortune. Um, he was born in southern Lebanon, but he had gone to Saudi Arabia, got a degree, helped build big projects in Saudi Arabia in return. And I'm pretty sure, I didn't have time to research this, but remember last that was a couple of years ago, that his son, who had eventually become prime minister of Lebanon, was detained in Saudi Arabia. And while he was detained in Saudi Arabia by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he resigned as the prime minister of Lebanon. That Hariri was both a citizen of Lebanon and a citizen of Saudi Arabia, so I believe he was born in Saudi Arabia while his father was visiting there. So he had dual citizenship. And eventually he returned and he was put back as prime minister, but only after paying about a $7 billion ransom to get, get out of jail card. His bail price was $7 billion. So the Hariris, like a lot of people in the elites that govern Lebanon, are, are fabulously wealthy. Um, so anyway, eventually... Um, Rafiq Hariri became prime, he became, he was prime minister of Lebanon. And on February 14th, 2005, he went to a meeting in Lebanon. He was then told, well, there's some other people you should meet with. So he delayed and he always traveled with a security detail of about 50 people because he took seriously what Assad, the threat that Assad and the others had made against him when he was in Damascus in August of 2004. And while um, I would recommend that you get this story there, but it's clear that while he was moving around Beirut that day, whenever he moved, there were people making all kinds of cell phone calls. And what they were doing was they were calling and they were directing, they were Hezbollah operatives, and they were calling and directing a truck loaded with explosives. The amount of explosives, and I believe the explosives on that truck were included ammonium nitrate, which is a favorite of Hezbollah to this day. 
And the bomb blew off near in front of the St. George Hotel and killed pretty much everyone in the security detail, uh, over 100 people, and it took place. Here's a little map of where it occurred. Uh, at the number five in the upper corner there, that is where the bombing took place that took out Prime Minister Hariri, and it says 21 others. So they immediately they've they've you know all long suspected that it's this. And so interestingly enough, the explosion that took place the other day happened not too far away. And I don't think there's any I don't think I think there is a connection there. Because Hezbollah is heavily entrenched in this area. Here's another picture of the waterfront. This is where the uh, satellite picture, this is where the explosion took place this week. So you need to understand that the tribunal in the Netherlands that's been hearing this off and on for over 10 years now, they've never really charged anybody. They haven't arrested anybody. Nobody really knows where all the Hezbollah operatives are that are suspected of causing this, that the tribunal is investigating. And Nasrallah has said, you're never going to find them. Now, we know that a couple of them have been killed. One was killed in... Uh, military operation in Syria about 2016, I believe, and others have just not really ever been located. But that tribunal was supposed to issue its opinion this week. I think this is a very critical fact. And most watchers who've been observing this thing for a very long time, uh, we were all much younger people when this tribunal started, it's been going on, off and on, for almost 15 years. It's, it's being operated under a resolution of the United, State, of the United Nations because they think it's that bad. And so, listen, Assad in Syria has his hands all over this. And has, he supports Hezbollah, Hezbollah supports him, Iran supports Hezbollah, and you begin to see the connection that's all going on here and unfortunately seems to be centered in Beirut, which was, as you can see, it's on the water, it's a beautiful city, but it's been destroyed. And so here is what happened on August 6th, just a couple, I sort of sequenced a few different views of what happened. A warehouse essentially blew up. Look at it, I mean, so it's, it was a... Uh, massive explosion. <laughs> but actually, as we'll see when we go through some of the analysis of this, it was actually a series of explosions. It was caused tremendous damage in Beirut. Said it was like the apocalypse. Here's a satellite picture of what the wharf area, the port area, which if you go to the north of this port, this is... Um, the Mediterranean. It's sort of on the peninsula there. The airport, if you go west of the airport, you're in the Mediterranean. But there was some speculation that uh, this was a warehouse around the airport, and it's not. The airport's about five miles away. This is what it looks like now. So you can see the difference. It goes from this and the wharf there right in the middle is what it looks like. There's a massive crater there. There was massive grain silos there. These grain silos are very, very important to 
The food supply of Lebanon, which imports, I'm told, my research indicates, 80 to 90% of its food is imported. Because the country's in such desperate financial shape. And so this was a live feed that ran several hours on one of the local news channels, uh, TV channels in Lebanon. And you can see that even late into the evening, the fires all over the wharf area continued to burn. It was a, a devastating explosion, explosions really. There were really three explosions. This is Al-Akbar, which is a Hezbollah-friendly um, newspaper published in Beirut. And you can see the left one says the great collapse, the right one, the that was the next morning, and then the following morning the newspaper headline was after the earthquake. And it was, it, it is a uh, incredible attack, or it was a, it, the devastation was enormous. Uh, Beirut wakes up to a nightmare. This is the wharf area. Those are grain silos. You know how those build out of concrete. And everywhere that's sort of become the symbol of what happened to Beirut, the destruction of those grain silos, which is vital to their food. It's now said that the grain reserves in Lebanon will run out in less than a month unless they're resupplied somehow. Uh, people in the rubble, I understand that there's still about 60 people missing. There's an interesting video you can find it on the internet of a bride who was outside in one of the plazas in Beirut having her in her bridal gown having her photograph taken. And in, you see over her shoulder, you see one of the guys, he's got a mask on, black to match his tux, of course. Um, but uh, he kind of looks down the street, and boom, all of a sudden this blast comes through. And everybody had to run because of the shockwave from the explosion. It is uh, a lot, there were... I think I saw 54 Syrians were killed in the blast. The death toll is around 150 now. Still 60 missing. It's amazing that more people were not killed given the scope of that explosion. And the reports all everywhere were that the explosion now pushes Lebanon to the brink. But remember, less than a week before in Foreign Policy magazine, Stephen Cook had written a very well done article about how Lebanon was at the point of, if it had not already collapsed, it was at the point of collapse. And this was just enough to push it over the brink. So the site of the explosion there, you can see uh, the area of the shopping mall, Beirut Central District, that's the area where Hariri's, uh, Prime Minister Hariri was assassinated. Again, the, I guess the symbol of the, of the uh, silos I grew up across the street from silos like this at a cement plant. And I often wondered, I was like, how are they ever going to get those things down? Well, this was a massive blast. You can see it didn't knock them down, but it certainly destroyed them. And the scenes coming out of that are apocalyptic. Reports are that 250 to 300,000 people, which is about 10% of the population of the city of Beirut, are homeless because of this. The cost to repair it the damage could be somewhere between three and $15 billion. Where are they gonna get the money? They don't have the money to do anything right now. They defaulted on all their international debt at the end of June. It is a, 
massive problem. This article on foreign policy, the Beirut blast is Lebanon's Chernobyl. That's where I got my title from this week. And you can see that it affected a lot of people. Here are the population densities. The darker the color, the more dense the population. But you can see you get three miles out from the uh, epicenter of the blast, and that area has 1.8 million residents. It's essentially the this, this population the size of Columbus, compressed into a much smaller area. And the blast knocked out windows up to six miles away. It was heard in Cyprus, 150 miles to the west. It was heard, I even have heard people heard it in northern Israel. So there's a lot of speculation about, okay, how did this happen? What blew up? Who's responsible? And you're going to see a lot of speculation about it. I'm going to deal with some of those right now. Uh, ammonium nitrate is known as an... Um, it's not really an explosive in and of itself, but it can cause massive explosions. Because what it does is it, it sort of acts as an accelerant. It enhances whatever fuel is going to explode. It makes it that much worse. So ammonium nitrate in and of itself doesn't blow anything up. When Timothy McVeigh and I think the, some Iranians took out the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. That was done with a, a bomb that used ammonium nitrate that had been soaked in fuel oil. And that's why it blew up. The amount of ammonium nitrate at the port was about just under 3,000 tons, about 1,700 times more powerful than what blew up in Oklahoma City. And by the way, if you think that um, Hezbollah doesn't like ammonium nitrate to enhance normal things like fuel oil, know that when Hariri was assassinated in 2005, that bomb was probably twice as powerful as the one that took out the federal building in Oklahoma City in, when was that, 92, 93, somewhere along there. But I, to give you an example of how this ammonium nitrate goes, now, there are people in the background talking, and they may say some bad words. I want you to understand that. I didn't scrub them out. But a uh, port in Tianjin, uh, China, in 2015, had an explosion of about eight, it involved about 880 tons, it's estimated, of ammonium nitrate. About one-third the amount that was present at the port there in Lebanon in Beirut. And so here's what it was, there's people watching, there was an initial explosion, and so people started filming it, just like there was an initial explosion in Beirut, and they started filming it. Here's what happened to Yanjim in 2015. It says that maybe it maybe well, there's another one. Okay, these people, I mean, look at this explosion. I mean, this thing was massive. But guess what? Like Beirut, there was a third explosion. You'll see it coming up here in just a second. 
It's a... <laughs> Somebody's standing there filming it. Yeah. There it goes. And now they're like, okay, we got to get out of here. That's bad. So what happened there in Tianjin, it was a port area. About 50% of imported cars come into um, the city through that port. There were a massive number of cars at the port lined up there. 3,000 Jeep Cherokees uh, were destroyed. There's the crater that was left behind. That was one-third the amount of ammonium nitrate involved in that was involved in the Beirut explosion. You can see the damaged cars there. 3,000 brand new Jeep Cherokee SUVs and billions of dollars of damage. All those cars had to be taken away. That was just five years ago. I, I don't think it got a lot of play in the press. I have played that clip a number of times, but it was a massive explosion. So that's just to kind of give you a little bit of what happened. So this is what the port looked like on June 9th, 2020 in Beirut. And this is what it looked like the day after the explosion. Do you see the difference that it, it went from that? Look at all the buildings there, ships and whatnot. It flipped one of those ships here over on its side. Now, Hassan Nasrallah back in 2016 had given a speech, and during this speech, he kind of joked about it, or, and he said, and this guy, they don't only just film all of their terrorist attacks, they also film everything this guy says. And he's... He's, he's as uh, active as Erdogan is in Turkey on getting on video. And so what he said was, look, I know the port in Haifa, and they have 15,000 tons of ammonium store, ammonia stored there. I don't know that it's ammonium nitrate, but it's been a very controversial thing in Israel. A lot of people want to get rid of it. And he says, we don't need a nuclear bomb. We have one. We'll just launch a missile into the ammonia storage facility in Haifa, and it'll take out 80,000 people immediately. And when he's talking about this elsewhere, in the, he's kind of he takes off his glasses and he kind of chuckles and that type of thing. And Seth Fransman tweeted this the other day that Hezbollah has been known to be purchase ammonium nitrate. They love ammonium nitrate. They've had stores of it found in Hezbollah cells, I believe in England and also in Germany. And we know what happened with this. So there was a lot of theory at the beginning that the uh, this upper part here where it says up here at the bay, this is the area where the explosion occurred. There were a lot of people reporting on a number of sites um, I think somebody sent me a video from Alex Jones, and he said, oh, well, this is what Netanyahu talked about at the UN in 2018. This is where the explosion occurred, and it's just not true. Uh, it's about five miles from the airport down to, or between the airport and the, the harbor where the explosion occurred. And so here's, just so you can be sure about that, here's Netanyahu speaking at the UN, September 27th, 2018. In Lebanon, in Lebanon, Iran is directing Hezbollah 
to build secret sites, to convert inaccurate projectiles into precision-guided missiles, missiles that can target deep inside Israel within an accuracy of 10 meters. Hezbollah, listen to this, Hezbollah is deliberately using the innocent people of Beirut as human shields. They've placed three of these missile conversion sites along Beirut's international airport. Here's a picture that's worth a thousand missiles. Here's Beirut's international airport. Here's the first missile site. It's in the Uzai neighborhood on the water's edge, a few blocks away from the runway. Here's the second site. It's underneath a soccer stadium. That's the soccer stadium. Two blocks away. And here's the third site. It's adjacent to the airport itself, right next to it. So I have a message for Hezbollah today. Israel knows, Israel also knows what you're doing. Israel knows where you're doing it. And Israel will not let you get away with it. And so here's a screen capture of another part of his, um, if you could back that out a little bit, of the graphic that he used in... Um, um, his speech at the UN. Maybe we need to contact the UN and give them the FBC PowerPoint thing so they can sort of upgrade their graphics a little bit. <laughs> uh, so everybody's upset. The, the people in Lebanon are upset at the ruling elite. They were protesting. Um, Seth Fransman has done some just great work in the Jerusalem Post and elsewhere that uh, he said in his article the other day in the Jerusalem Post that Hezbollah is known to have special privileges at the port in Beirut. They have things come in that are not, they don't go through customs, they don't go through inspections, it's all controlled by Hezbollah. So this is a problem. George Friedman at the Geopolitical Futures a few weeks ago wrote an article about Lebanon's place in the Middle East, and he also started on this theme that Lebanon has sectarian problems and it is essentially a failed state. They, they try to play off all the little different political parties and sect, sects and everything against each other. It's just not working. Seth Fransman in his article a couple days after the explosion wrote about how can Lebanon get back on its feet? And it's estimated that Hezbollah has taken out of the Lebanese economy somewhere around $93 billion over the years to fund its operations. And they have operations going in, in Central, South, and North America as well. They're not just limited. Like the Iranians, they're Iranian proxies and they have global ambitions. This is what you need to understand. And you're going to see a little bit about how that is coming to 
um, pass. And here the article also in the Jerusalem Post, after the blast, Lebanon has less than a month's grain reserves left. Now, one world leader did show up in Beirut almost immediately, and you can see that here are some uh, articles, Global Times, Le Figaro. Emmanuel Macron showed up in Beirut the next day to talk about how France stands with the people of Lebanon. I don't believe he was doing it necessarily on behalf of the European Union, but I think he sort of spoke what they were thinking is these people desperately need help. As he walked through the streets of Beirut, he was, uh, he was mobbed. Uh, here's a picture in the, uh, somebody tweeted a video of this. A lady grabbed him. She said, you need to save us. Please save us. You're the only one who can save us. We're looking for you to be our savior. And he pushed his security guards away and he reached out and hugged the lady and talked to her. And of course, that made it on the front page of the Al-Akbar newspaper. You can see a little bit of what happened there. He was just mobbed. This is one of the uh, Arab editorial cartoons about, uh, this is Macron landing, and there's no truth to the rumor that he walked from France to uh, Lebanon across the Mediterranean, even though The Economist has suggested that. But he's there, and the only thing that he really brought was this, I think it's, I love these editorial cartoons, because it's like, he only brought a Band-Aid, and that's not going to do much for this. The National this morning and the Arab News talked about, we are going to a funeral for a country that is dead. That is the sentiment of the people. There were riots and demonstrations on the streets yesterday. They also took um, an effigy, a cardboard cutout of Nasrallah. This is kind of unusual for... Beirut and hung it in effigy, along with some of the uh, other leaders in Beirut. People are angry and upset. As I said, the country, Lebanon, is on the verge of collapse. It's interesting, Caroline Glick and some others tweeted the pictures in the upper left and lower right of plainclothes civilian people who were shooting bullets at demonstrators in Lebanon. Probably... Hezbollah operatives. Well, Nasrallah, you know, he never can stay quiet for more than a day or two. So he came out and he gave a speech yesterday, and he said, or Friday, and he said, yeah, whoever is responsible for this must be tried. And here's just a clip from the article that uh, was in the Jerusalem Post on, uh, I think it's this morning. Hezbollah is I, the Haifa port, but had not stored explosives at the Bay Report. This is what Nasrallah said in his speech. Hezbollah has eyed Haifa port, but had not stored explosives at the Beirut port and had no connection to Tuesday's blast there, Nasrallah said. Quote, we know more about the port of Haifa than the port of Beirut, Nasrallah said. We talk about resistance. We are thinking of a strategy of defending Lebanon. We did not intervene in Lebanese affairs. Uh, so uh, the uh, little way to understand Nasrallah. If his lips are moving, he's probably lying. This man is a propagandist supreme. Iran, the Ayatollahs, Khomeini and Khomeini have loved him. Some of the outlets spread rumors that Hezbollah was responsible or that it was Hezbollah weapons that caused the tragic event. 
Nasrallah said, but he said the rumors are not true. The explosion affected people of all religious sects and that several Hezbollah operatives were killed and wounded in the disaster. Probably. <laughs> if they were, why were they down there? If they had no connection. That's just a question I would ask. I'd love to take this guy's deposition. Uh, although it would probably fr be very frustrating because I know he wouldn't be telling me the truth. Nasrallah said this, this is an attempt to incite the Lebanese people against Hezbollah. Well, that ship has sailed, Nasrallah. All of Hezbollah's institutions and capacities are here to help the Lebanese state after the Beirut blast. Hezbollah is ready to help any family that has lost its home. People must not stay on the streets. He's mentioned at the start of his speech, but he said he did not want to focus on Israel. He said, quote, I will not talk today about the Israeli enemy, only about the disaster that befell Lebanon. And there's been a lot of efforts by the people in Lebanon to say Israel had nothing to do with this. There are a couple of very good papers that I would highly recommend for you. One is at the Begin Sadat Center. It's uh, a paper that just came out uh, Friday by Dr. Mordecai Kadar, who is an expert on the Palestinian issue. It's titled, What Really Happened at the Port of Beirut? And he says this, I'll just give you the five points that he makes. There was a series of at least three explosions, each of which had a different result. The first, and you can watch the videos and see that what he says is entirely accurate. The first created a gray column of smoke that remained for several minutes. The second, a column of red smoke also remained for several minutes. And the third created a white mushroom cloud that dissipated within seconds. This suggests that at least three different materials were stored in that warehouse. And I think this is exactly accurate. Point two, anyone familiar with how a port operates knows that the front row of warehouses, which are close, closest to the water, are used for short-term storage. Cargo that is meant to be stored long-term is moved to warehouses farther away from the water. Point three, anyone who ships sensitive cargo and does not want it to be seen, photographed, or targeted by others from air, space, or grounded tries to hide it as close as possible to the water. The warehouse that exploded was on the water's edge. After Israel, point four, after Israel attacked the warehouses at Damascus Airport several times, Beirut Seaport replaced Damascus Airport as the destination for Hezbollah's ammunition and explosive imports from Iran. What used to arrive in the, at Damascus by airport, by air, is now brought to Beirut by ship. For Hezbollah's purposes, the warehouses at the port of Beirut have replaced the warehouses at the Damascus airport. Very important point. Point five. What probably happened on August 4 was an explosion of volatile and flammable materials that were incorrectly stored by Hezbollah for at least a day in a metal non-air conditioned warehouse. As it is midsummer, temp midsummer temperatures are very high. I believe that um, I believe missile fuel fumes evaporated from a container and touched the hot wall or ceiling where they ignited and caused a chain reaction of explosions. And then point six, less than an hour after the explosion, Hezbollah announced that the exploded material was ammonium nitrate. Hezbollah was the first to report it. The reason? Hezbollah was looking for a way to cover up its own negligence and establish an official version that deflected attention away from itself because no one in the government would dare contradict them. Because if you do contradict them, you will end up like Rafiq Hariri. You will be the victim of an ammonium nitrate 
enhanced bomb. And this is the way they operate. It's, it's a fact. Now, at the Center for Security Policy, David Wormser also has an excellent article, 11 and What Happened. He makes reference to uh, Dr. Kadar's article. Uh, you can look it up at the Center for Security Policy. There's also, uh, just look it up there. That's, that's where it's located. But he also talked about three explosions at Hangars 9 and 12. He goes, regarding Hangars 9 and 12, Lebanese are universal in their belief that Hezbollah rules the critical areas of the port as a government within a government. As head of the program on studying terrorism in Israel's Hezbollah Center, Mordecai Kadar has noted that there are many videos of Hezbollah officials bragging about their Fatima Gate, interesting name, which is a nickname given their independent clandestine port structure in Beirut, completely out of control and visibility of the Lebanese government. And knowing what I know about the Lebanese government and the way that it operates and the way that it doesn't operate and the way that it's incredibly corrupt, I think this is an entirely plausible scenario. In those videos, it is noteworthy that the Hezbollah bragged that the future, that the Fatima Gate and Beirut port is where they can come and go at will, import and export freely, and smuggle unharassed, not only without interference by customs authorities, but often without their knowledge. Kadar believes that hangars 9 and 12 structures are the noted Fatima Gate. They're closest to the water, meaning they are most prime warehouses for unloading ships, without being detected by satellite or aerial reconnaissance and very close to the exit of the port as well. Lebanese port workers themselves regard Hangar 12 as an off-limits Hezbollah zone. This is the one that exploded. These two warehouses being the closest to the water line were clearly the most sought after structures for rapid movement and transfer, not long-term storage. Indeed, the port authority asked that the ammonium nitrate be removed to more distant storage sheds, but those requests were met with silence. Now, the question is, did Israel, that everybody has, did Israel take this out? There was a guy, Richard Schneid Silverstein, who is a uh, anti-Israel Jewish guy who has a Tikkun Olam blog, and he said, Israel bombed Beirut. That was picked up on by different um, other people, including some conspiracy theory sites. And they're easy enough to find. There were all these videos. People were sending me these um, different, they were sending me all these videos that showed, oh, there was this laser thing that came out of the sky. There was a missile. You know, and I, so I saw like three different versions of a missile. But I had carefully reviewed this thing, and I, I did know in a conversation with somebody that, look, I, what I saw was birds flying through the port, which having been around like Cleveland and the port there, birds fly around the port up there. <laughs> it's just where you find them. And some of the videos are clearly doctored, so I question those. There's, um, can't remember the name of the blog. I found it on, a friend of mine tweeted it. They went through a very good analysis to show how one of the videos that people said, see, this, this is a missile from Israel. Israel did this. It was like a missile taken out of a cartoon, and they tried to superimpose it. it. I mean, it wasn't even very well done, but people believe anything today. Back to this. So this explosion that happened um, in, on the waterfront in Beirut, could have been negligence, 
yeah, somebody could have taken it out. It's interesting, this ammonium nitrate had come from a Moldavian registered ship called the Rosas, the MV Rosas. And uh, it's now sunk, but it, was, it wasn't seaworthy. It's very interesting how this happened. So the ship comes around Lebanon, and it issues an SOS. We're, our ship's falling apart. We can't make port. Can you help us? So they're brought into the port, and they had you know, 3,000, about 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate, and it was taken off the port. Now, there are some people who think that Iran and Hezbollah did the... So they got a leaky boat, used it to ship ammonium nitrate, claiming that it was going to Mozambique. It just happened to break down near Beirut, and then all of a sudden 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate end up in the waterfront warehouse in Beirut. I'm, um, I remember one movie was... Coincidence is an amazing thing, as a lawyer said that about uh, some evidence being destroyed in a case once. So very interesting, though. Sky News this morning was doing a, a... So Nasrallah says, we don't have anything to do with the port. I don't know what's going on. I, we, we don't have anything there. So it's interesting, as they're searching for survivors, this morning there's a, a tweet from Sky News from their reporter. Look at what their reporter says in this tweet. I find it very, very interesting. Oh, by the way, before I play this video, I want to read you also what was reported by David Wormser in his article, Lebanon, What Happened. There was an interview about this ship. He says this, notably the interview could cost the former inspector his life, so it is rather surprising that he openly recounted what he revealed about this ship. He claims that he was the inspector who personally interviewed the ship captain and the story he tells about the ammonium nitrate is shocking and worth summarizing here. The ship's captain, Boris Prokashev, said the ship was not seaworthy and nor was he. The inspector noted the captain was consistently drunk, but both the captain and the inspector understood that is why the ship or captain were chosen. No, one, no respectable ship owner or captain would do this mission. The whole crew were desperados, essentially. In short, there was something untoward, untoward about the very nature of the shipment from the start. Listen to this. Very important. When the ship passed the Bosporus, which goes that narrow waterway there between parts of Istanbul, on the west side, of course, is where the Hagia Sophia is that Erdogan turned into a mosque and central Istanbul is across the bridge. When the ship passed the Bosphorus, the Turkish transit authorities stopped it because they worried the ship was not seaworthy. Upon boarding, this, this make a great movie. Upon boarding, they were inspected and saw the shipment, at which point they moved to seize it to prevent the Bosphorus passage as a grave hazard. The head of the Bosporus Maritime Transit then received a phone call from President Recep Erdogan's office saying that Erdogan personally requested it be released and allowed Bosporus passage. The head of Bosporus Transit was so upset by this, fearing it could be a terror ship that, he, uh, that could be used in Istanbul, that he tweeted publicly his disapproval of passage as a self-protective maneuver. 
The ship, being unseaworthy, used its SOS status as a cover and made straight for Beirut, not Cyprus, which was just as close along its track, but where its owner was and where the ship had previously been flagged. Once in Beirut, the official story was established that the ship cannot continue and the cargo essentially brought, bought out by unknown people. That is why the ship owner, an oligarch who did not build his reputation on being a pushover, never launched a court challenge over the confiscation of the ammonium nitrate by the Beirut port. The Beirut port inspector office had his team launch a quiet investigation as to where the money came from for the purchases. They concluded the money trail led back to, guess where? Iran. So this is a very interesting thing. So Hezbollah came, we, we don't even know what's going on down there. But what is Hezbollah known for in southern Lebanon? What are they building all the time? Uh, under the border, tunnels, sophisticated tunnels. And Israel seeks them out to destroy them. That's because they can get people through the tunnel. They can do terror attacks and really cause a lot of havoc. It's, one of the, it's what they're known for, tunnels, subterranean tunnels. So, here is the report from Sky News. Listen closely. They know that there's a labyrinth of subterranean chambers here. They've discovered the opening of just one of them. And if you come a bit closer, you can see the top of what looks like the ceiling of one. And that's what is keeping the hopes of relatives alive, that somehow their loved ones have made it to that shelter. Okay, now, so in the context of everything, maybe people are alive down there, maybe they've escaped. But the big picture is, why are all these tunnels there at the port? Where Hezbollah is, appears to be in control? Quintessence is an amazing thing. Well, so we'll have to wait and see. I, I, at this point, I do not uh, think that Israel is involved. Um, it was a pretty bold move. But look, there's also reports that what was being exchanged at the port was an Iranian undercover ship that had a tactical nuke or a, a dirty bomb on it. And if that's the case, that would lend credence to those who conclude that Israel was involved because Israel's not going to put up with this. This is, this is serious stuff. Uh, and it may be that they put the ammonium nitrate there knowing that nobody would dare attack it because it would blow the place sky high. So this is what Hezbollah does. They use people as human shields. You heard what Netanyahu said. This, they build things under schools and homes in southern Lebanon. They'll build a tunnel and they'll put the entrance under a school. And they'll know, well, see, Israel's not going to bomb that. The publicity of bombing a, a tunnel that we're going to use for terror attacks, that would be... Pretty horrific. So listen, let me just go over this very quickly because I'll have to go and do a little bit deeper dive on, uh, on some other time. But the other thing that you need to watch in the Middle East, so we have this thing in Hezbollah, this, the, the, the thing in Beirut. And if you want a prophetic takeaway from that, I shared this the other night. We know that there's this prophecy in Isaiah 17. I personally believe that it's still something to be fulfilled in the future. And it says, the burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. And it's not hard to understand how that Bible prophecy could be fulfilled. 
particularly when you understand the connection between <clears throat> Bashar al-Assad, the dictator that rules Syria, and the terrorist head, Nasrallah, of Hezbollah. And it's easy to see how that could happen. But the other thing I want you to take just particular quick note of is the developing alliances in the area. This is an article from a couple months ago in the Jerusalem Post, a troubling new alliance. I mentioned this, uh, I think at the time when this article came out, it was in May of 2020. Uh, Jonathan Spire, one of the better analysts on the Middle East, a troubling new alliance, Turkey, Pakistan, Malaysia, and Qatar form emergent power nexus in the Islamic world. You also need to know that Erdogan is pro-Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, when it was pushed out in Egypt, it didn't go away. It did like they've done for almost 100 years. They were formed in 1928, and now for almost 100 years. When they come to power, they come to power, and when they get under pressure, they um, scamper for the dark corners, like certain insects do, when you shine the light on them. And then they build themselves up, and then they come back. And what you're seeing is you're seeing a resurgence, particularly in Africa, of Muslim Brotherhood attacks in many, many places, in large part funded by um, Turkey. Turkey was very pro the Muslim Brotherhood revolution that took place in Egypt back about 2012. That was overthrown then about a year later in 2013. Turkey is also pushing with some <clears throat> the rise of Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan. And again, Sudan, that's one of these countries in this coalition of Ezekiel 38. So you have Turkey and Libya, you have Turkey and Sudan, you have Turkey and Turkey, you have Turkey and Syria, and you see all these things, how they're very interconnected now. And really, Turkey and Iran, they sort of are at odds, but they work together on some issues. They're very much united. So that's one, that's one alliance. Another alliance is we've talked about Turkey doing this stuff in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so what happened this week was there was a, um, um, this is the Eastern Med. Everybody has an economic zone. This is determined under international law and you, have, you control certain territorial waters. But look at Turkey. Turkey doesn't have much territorial water. And the other thing Turkey doesn't have is they've never really discovered gas in Turkey. Now, Turkey sits at a perfect transit point for gas from other places, but it doesn't have gas of its, loan and, of its own, and Erdogan does not like that. So what Erdogan did, you might remember a couple months ago, he made this agreement with, for an economic zone with Libya. But the Libyan government controls the part over there by where the purple is at Tripoli, that he made the agreement with, they don't control the other part over here in Western Libya, right here. But the economic zone goes from here to here. And part of it is to cut off Israel's proposed pipeline to Cyprus, to Greece, and then up. So here, but what happened this week was Egypt entered into an agreement with Greece to have an economic zone like Libya does. It's, it's like a chess game, okay? So, you know, Erdogan's there saying checkmate, or check, and he thinks he's got checkmate, and now Egypt and Lib uh, Greece are getting together, and they say, nope, we've got an economic zone. Here's the 
Libya, Turkey economic zone in red. And so now there's a check. And there's also one from Gaza to Turkey to cut things off. And so everybody's playing these games. And Erdogan actually came out and he um, did an interview yesterday. And he said, you know, this, this thing, I don't understand. This, this Egypt, they, they, they can't do this. They can't make an economic zone all across the Mediterranean. Who does that? That's illegitimate. Except when I do it. And except when I approve the passage of a ship loaded with ammonium nitrate through the Bosporus in one of the largest cities on the planet, that's okay. Because I'm... This guy wants to recreate the, the caliphate. There's no doubt about that. Turkey has even stepped in to offer to help rebuild the port. Turkey supports Hezbollah to the extent its interests do not conflict with those of Iran. And then there's this, and I mentioned this a couple times, and I'll be very, very quick with this. Iran and Turkey, Iran and China have entered into this 25-year agreement. And it's different than it's not just economic, it also includes security provisions. We will support you in the case of an attack. Uh, and this is, I find this funny in foreign policy. It says this, China's apolitical approach to the region. A China apolitical, are you kidding me? They're not apolitical. Attempts, aims to utilize Iran's regional power to expand economic ties with nearby countries and establish security in the region through what it calls developmental peace. And this is the tactic that they have, they're employing in the South China Sea. They're doing it in Iran. And uh, South China Morning Post, you can go look it up, the five main projects of the Belt and Road Initiative. It's an article from a couple years ago. It talks about there are things like they want a railway to Europe. And so here's um, the railway that they want to build from China all the way to London. This is, this is part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is a long way. This is, and they're working on it, and they're building it. And you can see all the different countries that they cross as they go. They eventually get into Europe, Poland, Germany, France, and then all the way to London. This is part of their thing. Another thing that they talk about is Corgos, the biggest dry port in the world. This is located in Central Asia on the, uh, in Kazakhstan. And what it does is it's a port to transfer... Uh, China has a different gauge railroad, so all the, the goods that come across the railroad have to be transferred to a narrower gauge that's um, used in Russia. Or, I'm sorry, a I think a wider gauge. Yeah, wider gauge. And it's, it's only off by a couple inches, but, you know, railroad cars really like to be on the rails. <laughs> and when they go off the rails, it's not a very pretty thing. Another thing is that China has done a super link to Gwadar port. This is a port that's located, they want to get from China across the Himalayas to a seaport. And so they're working on this road. They've done high-speed rail and that type of thing. And it goes all the way down through Pakistan to Gwadar, this giant port that they've built. It's one of the largest ports in the world. And it sits there at the entrance almost to the... Uh, Persian Gulf, and then one of the other things that they're doing is a railway to Iran, and this would end up in Tehran. So China's very actively involved in forming these alliances, and I think 
exactly how these play in end times Bible prophecy remains to be seen, but understand that China is very, very active in this uh, area. And this is going to be an important issue in our election. Well, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, interesting stories. The, um, the Hezbollah Connection article from the 2015 New York Times. It might be behind a paywall, but it's a, it's a fascinating read. And then the articles in the Center for Security Policy and then Dr. Kadar's paper at the Begin Sadat Center. Highly recommend that you read all three of those because they will really put a lot of this into context and give you, I think, some help in determining and discerning what exactly happened in Beirut the other day. But continue to pray for the people of Lebanon. Uh, they do need desperate help. Uh, I was reporting a month ago that there were reports coming that people were committing su suicide in Lebanon because they were running out of food. And they didn't know how they were going to feed their families and themselves. So it's the, the government has effectively collapsed. The head of the one of the heads of the government said, well, this could be a bomb, it could be an accident, we just have to investigate. But if you think there's going to be an answer anytime soon, they're still investigating, they're still waiting for the tribunal determination on the Hariri assassination in 2005. So it will be, it's going to be a, disrupted, a disruptive period of time, I'm sure of that. But look, we have the hope that uh, Jesus is going to return and clean this mess up, and uh, we should focus on that. In the meantime, we have some things that we need to be busy about, sharing the gospel with our friends. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you will um, keep us encouraged in a, a disrupted world that you are in control. Nothing is escaping your gaze, your oversight, but that these things must come about to fulfill Bible prophecy and to glorify you. And we pray that in anything that we do or how these play out, that you will be glorified in everything. Bless us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.